thousand sunsets from ten thousand morning, ten thousand chances to live the right way. But I would trade all my ten thousand sunsets. I could be like Jesus for one single day. I'd walk on the water and heal the sick children, feed all the hungry, give sight to the blind. I'd turn all the cannons and guns into flowers, turn all the whiskey to sacrament wine. That's what I'd do. That's what I'd do. Ten million stars are shining above. But I would trade off my ten thousand rainbows. I could be like Jesus and give all my love. I'd remind the people that hate is an evil thing. Laugh at the children and tell them a tale. Welcome back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. In our last episodes, reciting passages from my last book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees and Talk Radio and Cable News, which I recommend any of you obtain in print form at Amazon or at any major bookseller site if you find this topic of interest, to help you ponder its information and digest it better. We continued our review of the rise of the 20th century conservative Christian media by introducing the electrifying emergence of America's first prosperity gospel preacher, Reverend James F. Fifield Jr., who gave away the secret for the potential co-opting of conservative Christians by the then-wounded big business and finance communities. By tailoring a unique gospel-like message, targeting the only leaders people in post-depression America still trusted, their clergy. Today we will continue the narrative from my book on the ramifications of this momentous event in American cultural approbation. After Reverend Fifield's radio broadcast speech at the 1940 National Association of Manufacturers Convention and the early beginnings of the religious right and parachurch organizations. From here, I will proceed to quote from my book, initially from a 2015 article in Politico by author Kevin Cruz that I cite. It was a watershed moment, the beginning of a movement that would advance over the 1940s and early 1950s a new blend of conservative religion, economics, and politics that one observer aptly anointed Christian libertarianism. Fifield and like-minded ministers saw Christianity and capitalism as inextricably intertwined, 
and argued that spreading the gospel of one required spreading the gospel of the other. The two systems had been linked before, of course, but always in terms of their shared social characteristics. Fifield's innovation was his insistence that Christianity and capitalism were political soulmates, first and foremost. He and his colleagues devoted themselves to fighting the government forces they believed were threatening capitalism and, by extension, Christianity. And their activities helped build a foundation for a new vision of America in which businessmen would no longer suffer under the rule of Roosevelt but instead thrive, in a phrase they popularized, in a nation under God. For much of the 1930s, Organizations such as the National Association of Manufacturers, or NAM, had been searching in vain for ways to rehabilitate a public image that had been destroyed in the Great Depression and defamed by the New Deal. In 1934, a new generation of conservative industrialists took over the NAM with a promise to, quote, serve the purposes of business salvation. The organization rededicated itself to spreading the gospel of free enterprise, vastly expanding its expenditures in the field. As late as 1934, NAM spent a paltry $36,000 on public relations. Three years later, it devoted $793,043 to the cause, more than half its total income. That's in 1937. NAM now promoted capitalism through a wide array of films, radio programs, advertisements, direct mail, a speaker's bureau, and a press service that provided ready-made editorials and news stories for 7,500 local newspapers. Ultimately, though, industry self-promotion was seen as precisely that. Even President Franklin Roosevelt took his shots. It has been said that there are two great commandments. One is to love God and the other to love your neighbor. He noted soon after the Liberty Leagues and associated organizations creation. He added, the two particular tenets of this new organization say you shall love God and then forget your neighbor. Off the record, he joked that the name of the God they worshipped seemed to be property. When Roosevelt launched the New Deal, politically liberal clergymen echoed his arguments, championing his proposal for a vast welfare state as simply the Christian thing to do. The head of the Federal Council of Churches, for instance, claimed the New Deal embodied a basic Christian principle such as the significance of daily bread, shelter, and security. When businessmen realized their economic arguments were no match for Roosevelt's religious ones, they decided to beat him at his own game. And that's where Reverend Fifield came in. Nicknamed the Apostle to Millionaires by a friendly writer, Fifield took over the elite First Congregational Church in Los Angeles in 1935. The minister was well matched to the millionaires in his pews. Politically conservative, but doctrinally liberal, he crafted an interpretation of the Bible that catered to his congregation. Notably, Fifeld dismissed the many passages in the New Testament about wealth and poverty, and instead assured the elite that their worldly success was a sign of God's blessings. 
Soon after his arrival in Los Angeles, Fifield founded Spiritual Mobilization, an organization whose mission was, quote, to arouse the ministers of all denominations in America to check the trends towards state pagan statism, which would destroy our basic freedom and spiritual ideals. The organization's credo reflected the common politics of the millionaires in his congregation. Men were creatures of God imbued with inalienable rights and responsibilities, specifically enumerated as, quote, the churches, it asserted, had a solemn duty to defend those rights against the encroachments of the state. Fifield quickly brought the organization into national politics, gaining attention from leading conservatives across America who were eager to enlist ministers in their fight against the New Deal. Former President Herbert Hoover, deposed by Roosevelt and disparaged by his acolytes, advised and encouraged Fifield in personal meetings and regular correspondence. In October 1938, Fifield sent an alarmist tract to more than 70,000 clergymen across the nation, seeking to recruit them in the revolt against Roosevelt. We ministers have special opportunities and special responsibilities in these critical days, it began. America's movement toward dictatorship has already eliminated checks and balances in its concentration of powers in our chief executive. Finding the leaflet to his liking, Hoover sent Fifield a warm note of appreciation and urged him to press on. Within a few years, the minister had the support of not just Hoover, but an impressive array of conservative figures in politics, business, and religion. A who's who of the conservative establishment, in the words of one observer. In the mid-1940s, he won a number of powerful new patrons, but none was more important than J. Howard Pugh, Jr., president of Sun Oil, now known as Sunoco. He had previously been involved in anti-New Deal organizations like the Liberty League and now believed the post-war era would witness a renewed struggle for the soul of the nation. Looking over some material from spiritual mobilization, Pugh decided the organization shared his understanding of what was wrong with America and what needed to be done. But to his dismay, the material offered no agenda for action whatsoever merely noting that spiritual mobilization would send clergy, clergymen bulletins and place advertisements, but ultimately leave details of what to do to individual ministers. Pugh thought this was no way to run a national operation. In February 1945, famed industrial consultant Alfred Hockey explained to Pugh why NAM's own outreach to ministers had failed. Of approximately 30 preachers to whom I have thus far talked, I have yet to find one who was unqualifiedly impressed. One of the men put it almost typically for the rest when he said, The careful preparation and framework for the meetings to which we are brought is too apparent. We cannot help but see that it is expertly designed propaganda and that there must be big money behind it. We easily become suspicious. If they wanted to convince clergymen to side with them, industrialists would need a subtler approach. Rather than treating ministers as a passive audience to be persuaded, Hockey argued, they should involve them actively in the cause as participants. 
The first step would be making ministers realize that they, too, had something to fear from the growth of government. The religious leaders must be helped to discover that their callings are threatened, Hockey argued, by realizing that the collectivism of the New Deal, with the glorification of the state, is really a denial of God. Once they were thus alarmed, they would readily join spiritual mobilization as its representatives and could then be organized more effectively into a force for change both locally and nationally. Reverend Fifield worked to make spiritual mobilization out of the ranks of the clergy. The growing numbers of its minister representatives were found in every state, with large concentrations in industrial regions like New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Illinois. They were overwhelmingly Protestant, though a scattering of priests and rabbis allowed the organization to present itself as part of the new spirit of Judeo-Christianity. In the previous decade, this innovative interfaith approach had taken shape as a way for liberal clergymen to unite in common social causes. Now, in the post-war era, conservative organizations such as spiritual mobilization shrewdly followed suit. The organization grew rapidly. In February 1947, Fifield reported that in three years he had expanded the mass of their minister representatives from an initial 400 members to more than 10,000 in all. He set them to work spreading arguments against the pagan statism of the New Deal. It is time to exalt the dignity of individual man as a child of God, he urged. Clergymen responded enthusiastically. Many wrote the Los Angeles office to request advertised copies of Friedrich Hayek's libertarian treatise, The Road to Serfdom, and anti-New Deal tracts by Herbert Hoover and libertarian author Garrett Garrett. Armed with such materials, the minister representatives transformed secular arguments into spiritual ones and spread them widely. Occasionally I preach a sermon directly on your theme, a Midwestern minister wrote, but equally important, it is in the background of my thought as I prepare all my sermons, meet various groups and individuals. Everyday activities were echoed by special events. In October 1947, for instance, spiritual mobilization held a national sermon competition on the theme, quote, the perils to freedom, with $5,000 offered in prize money. The organization had more than 12,000 minister representatives at that point, but it received twice as many submissions for the competition, representing roughly 15% of the entire country's clergymen. Now let me explain, that means that 15% of all the clergymen in the country at that time were competing like Balaam to get a Balaam's wage of $5,000 in secret from their clergy in exchange for preaching a pro-business sermon. Just think about that. Let me re resume the narrative. Pleased with his progress, Fifield's backers doubled the annual budget. Pugh once again set the pace, soliciting donations from officials at 158 corporations, including long-standing supporters of spiritual mobilization, such as General Motors, Chrysler, 
National Steel, Firestone Tire and Rubber, and Gulf Oil. A large percentage of ministers in this country are completely ignorant of economic matters and have used their pulpits for the purpose of disseminating socialistic and totalitarian doctrines, Pew wrote in his appeal. Much of what has already been accomplished in the education of these ministers, but a great deal more is left to be done. The success of spiritual mobilization brought increased funding, but also scorn from progressives. In February 1948, the nation ran an acidic cover story. A major battle for the minds of the clergy, particularly those of the Protestant persuasion, is now being waged in America, it read. For the most part, the battle lines are honestly drawn and represent a sharp clash in ideologies. But now and then the reactionary side tries to fudge a bit by backing movements which mask their true character and real sponsors. Such a movement is spiritual mobilization. The article detailed the scope of its operations, noting its high-rent offices in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles, as well as hundreds of thousands of pamphlets by pro-business authors it distributed for free. But no one knew who was funding the operation, the nation warned. In this withering account, Fifield came off as a charlatan who prostrated himself before the apostles of rugged individualism to secure his own fame and fortune and in return prostituted himself for their needs. In response, spiritual mobilization redoubled its efforts, taking an even more aggressive approach to public relations. In 1949, it launched The Freedom Story, a 15-minute radio program consisting of a dramatic presentation and brief commentary from Fifield. In the original scripts, Fifield made direct attacks on Democratic programs at home, but his lawyer warned him that they would lose the public service designation, and all that came with that, that gave them free airtime if he were too plain spoken with partisan attacks. Instead, he advised, the minister should make use of foreign examples to illustrate the spreading menace of creeping socialism at home. Fifield's financial backers helped secure free airtime for these programs across the nation. In 1950, the Freedom Story was broadcast on over 500 stations. By late 1951, it aired on more than 800. Meanwhile, Spiritual Mobilization launched a monthly magazine, Faith in Freedom, showcasing the work of prominent libertarian authors, including Ludwig von Mises, leader of the Austrian School of Economics, Leonard Reed, founder of the Foundation for Economic Education, and Henry Hazlitt, a founding member of the Future American Enterprise Institute. Even though Lehman dominated the pages of Faith and Freedom, the journal purposely presented itself as created by ministers, for ministers. Spiritual mobilization had long operated on the principle that clergymen could not be swayed through crude propaganda. The articulation should be worked out beforehand, of course, and we should be ready to help the thinking of ministers on it, Hockey noted in one of his early musings, but it should be so done as to enable them to discover it for themselves. Faith and freedom thus presented itself as a forum in which ministers could disagree freely. But for all its claims about encouraging debate, 
the journal did little to hide its contempt for liberal ministers. The magazine repeatedly denounced the social gospel and, just as important, the clergymen who invoked it to advocate for the establishment and expansion of welfare state programs. In a typical article, Irving Howard, a Congregationalist minister, darkly noted the, quote, pagan origin of the social gospel in 19th century Unitarianism and Transcendentalism, claiming that it was part of a larger, quote, impetus to a shift in faith from God to man, from eternity to time, from the individual to the group, from individual conversion to social coercion, and from the church to the state. We're going to conclude for now our recitation of the narrative from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees and Talk Radio and Cable News, which is available in paperback, hardcover, and ebook form at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and elsewhere, and is much more comprehensive than what we will cover on this program series, and a better medium to review and ingest its information to co contemplate its contents. And our current discussion of history professor Kevin Cruz's article now in Politico about how the Christian media big business access formed long ago. In our next intelligence briefing segment, we are going to take a break from this narrative and do a little mopping up from last week's live surveillance show and finish up our aborted discussion about America's history with book burning and a related story from last week about the dark side of the widespread commercialization of psychedelic experiences. As we now contemplate entering into our own sacred space for our music for meditation, I would like to reflect on the last comments of this episode's narratives, in that the Christian media and big business axis declared outright war on the social gospel, and the clergymen and laymen social workers, and other fellow travelers who supported its aims. It arose in the early decades of this century in response to the squalid ghettos and tenements formed in our teeming and unsanitary major cities, as the new industrial age was driving people from the fresh air of the farms into cramped living quarters, with large families and poor health, with no education, being forced to work as children, and with all people working six to seven days a week for a pittance, with little time even for sleep, and no way out except perpetual rot and decay. Christians, many of them de deemed liberal, but not all, were pricked by their consciences and the Holy Spirit to come to the aid of their pitiful neighbors, providing food, simple medical assistance, inoculations from preventable diseases, free education, and advocacy with others building a union movement for workers' safety and other rights. This advocacy for what the Bible deems as the anawim, or the lost and forgotten ones, was considered a direct threat to the robber barons of big business in Wall Street, to their exploitation of these masses for profit, and a vulnerability to their windfall profits with it. They were able to use big dollars to buy these prominent ministers like Fifield with blood money to build a den of thieves, directing institutions like Christianity Today shortly thereafter, and most all of the promised Christian media arms today, at least in ideology, 
but usually with direct funding. To reflect this ambivalence toward their fellow man in our meditation now, the following song is a work that I have wanted to share with listeners for some time, since it clearly illustrates the cold shoulder and tone-deaf indifference I clearly associate now with the social Darwinism of modern conservatism, and sadly its Christian form. The late 60s was a great time of social activism music, even in country music, as witnessed in the works by Johnny Cash. This following 1969 song is a top 10 country hit by a forgotten minor star of that era, Henson Cargill. His songs are irresistible with meaning, and you will hear many of them here. He was most famous for his dark hit entitled Skip a Rope. Here, though, is my favorite, and what I believe is the campaign theme of modern conservatism, as expressed in the National Association of Manufacturers, Spiritual Mobilization, Faith and Freedom, and our Christian broadcasters today, entitled, None of My Business, here on the Two Spies Report. Little kids sleeping with rats in the bed, well it's none of my business. It's been a long time since they've been fed, but it's none of my business. Some more bad news from Vietnam, and China's playing with a great big bomb. I better take a pill to stay calm, cause it's none of my business. People are afraid to walk their own streets, but it's none of my business. Cops can't even walk on their beat, but it's none of my business. I read about a girl, I forgot her name. She was screaming for help, but nobody came. It seems like kind of a shame, but it's none of my business. Ten more billion on the national debt, well, it's none of my business. People in the slums are a little upset, that's none of my business. Kids dropping out of school looking for a thrill, learning the laws, kill or be killed. I better take another pill, cause it's none of my business. Now the preacher's saying something about getting involved, well it's none of my business. He said we got troubles that we gotta have solved, Lord that's none of my business. Now I go to church and I meditate, I don't even mind when they pass the plate, but this stuff about my fellow man's fate, well it's none of my business. Lord, it's none of my business. Welcome back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. As promised in the last segment, in this intelligence briefing, we are going to mop up some unfinished business from last week and finish up our discussion of the history in America of book burning and another article about the perils of the emerging big business of psychedelic pharma. Last week we noted that the first books burned in America were by the beloved Calvinist Puritans, 
who were threatened not by works on witchcraft, Satanism, or cults that deviated from the gospel, but rather a minister who claimed that everyone who pursued God could be saved as his will. We noted that the threats of America in its early days dictated the content of the books to be burned, culminating in, by the mid-1800s by the burning of books that didn't put slavery in a positive light, or books on Confederates in the North. Now we resume. In 1873, the war against books went federal with the passage of the Comstock Act, a congressional law that made it illegal to possess obscene or immoral text or articles, or send them through the mail. Championed by moral crusader Anthony Comstock, the laws were designed to ban both content about sexuality and birth control, which at the time was widely available via mail order. The law criminalized the activities of birth control advocates and forced popular pamphlets like Margaret Sanger's family limitation underground restricting the dissemination of knowledge about contraception at a time when open discussion about sexuality was taboo and infant and maternal mortality were rampant. This remained in effect until 1936. Meanwhile, obscenity was also a prime target in Boston, the capital of the state that had sanctioned the first book burning in the U.S., Boston's book censors challenged everything they considered indecent, from Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, which the society's president called a darling morsel of literary filth, to Ernest Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms. The New England Watch and Ward Society, a private organization that included many of Boston's most elite residents, petitioned against printed materials they found objectionable sued booksellers, pressured law enforcement and courts to bring obscenity charges against authors, and spurred the Boston Public Library to lock copies of the most controversial books, including books by Balzac and Milzola, in a restricted room known as the Inferno. By the 1920s, Boston was so notorious for banning books that authors intentionally printed their books there in hopes that the inevitable ban would give them a publicity boost elsewhere in the country. Even as social mores relaxed in the 20th century, school libraries remained sites of contentious battles about what kind of information should be available to children in an age of social progress and the modernization of American society. Parents and administrators grappled over both fiction and nonfiction during school board and library commission meetings. The reasons for the prolonged bans varied. Some books challenged long-standing narratives about American history or social norms. Others were deemed problematic for its language or for sexual or political content. The Jim Crow era South was a particular hotbed for book censorship. The United Daughters of the Confederacy made several attempts to ban school textbooks that did not offer a sympathetic view of the South's loss in the Civil War. There were also attempts to ban The Rabbit's Wedding, a 1954 children's book by Garth Williams that depicted a white rabbit marrying a black rabbit because opponents felt it encouraged interracial relationships. 
Those attempted bans tended to have a chilling effect on librarians afraid to acquire material that could be considered controversial. But some school and public librarians began to organize instead. They responded to a rash of challenges against books McCarthy-era censors felt encouraged communism or socialism during the 1950s and fought attempted bans on books like Huckleberry Finn, The Catcher in the Rye, To Kill a Mockingbird, and even The Canterbury Tales. In 1969, the Supreme Court weighed in on students' rights to free expression. In Tinker v. Des Moines, a case involving students who wore black armbands protesting the Vietnam War to school, the court ruled 7-2 to that, quote, neither teachers nor students shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. In 1982, the Supreme Court overtly addressed school books in a case involving a group of students who sued a New York school board for removing books by authors like Kurt Vonnegut and Langston Hughes that the board deemed, quote, anti-American, anti-Christian, anti-Semitic, just plain filthy. Local school boards may not remove books from school libraries simply because they dislike the ideas contained in those books, the court ruled in Island Trees Union Free School District versus Pico, citing students' First Amendment rights. Nonetheless, librarians contended with so many book challenges in the early 1980s that they created Banned Book Week, an annual event centered around the freedom to read. During Banned Book Week, the literary and library community raises awareness about commonly challenged books and First Amendment freedoms. Still, book challenges are more common than ever. Between July 1st, 2021 and March 31st, 2022 alone, just recently, there were 1,586 book bans in 86 school districts across 26 states. That's a nine-month period, affecting more than 2 million students, according to PEN America, a nonprofit that advocates for free speech. Stories in, uh, featuring LGBTQ issues or protagonists were a major target of bans, the group wrote, while other targets included book, books with storylines about race and racism, sexual content or sexual assault and death and grief. Texas led the charge against books. Its 713 bans were nearly double that of the other states. According to the American Library Association, the most challenged book of 2022 was Maya Kobabi's Gender Queer, a memoir about what it means to be non-binary. Other books on the most challenged list include Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye and Stephen Chbosky's The Perk of Being a Wallflower. First Amendment advocate Pat Scales, a veteran South Carolina Midland High School librarian and former chair of the American Library Association's Intellectual Freedom Committee, notes that outright censorship is only one face of book bans. Shelving books in inaccessible places, defacing them, or marking them with reading materials that puts them out of students' reach also keeps books out of would-be readers' hands, and challenges of any kind can create a chilling effect for librarians. Censorship is about control, 
Scales wrote in 2007 in the book Scales on Censorship, intellectual freedom is about respect. Now, I would just repeat again for emphasis and for our listeners and viewers to help remember this from last week. I find that isn't it interesting that these bans were not over published calls for hate or violence to people groups or attacks against religion, as some might think justified, but rather just simple appeals inside for people wanting to express their own freedom, which is deemed a threat, warranting such violent acts. Now, regarding the other case file I promised, in our last live surveillance shows, we were discussing a recent report on the expanded clinical experiments with DMT and other psychedelic drugs now beginning and attempts to commercialize them on a widespread basis. Let's continue reflecting on this topic and reviewing an online January 25, 2023 essay by psychology student Ed Prideau on the site Unheard entitled, Is the Psychedelic Industrial Complex Evil? There, he writes, more real than reality itself. This is the sales pitch made by fans of dimethyltryptamine, otherwise known as DMT, the compound found in ayahuasca. It returned to the spotlight recently thanks to Prince Harry's description of his trips, which, he says, cleared the windshield of trauma from his mother's death. Now, these psychotechnologies often seem to work by providing, in the words of Walter Benjamin, a kind of profane illumination, a taste of something real. Psychedelic trips have played a part in mystical traditions for millennia, but the revival comes at a time when our old religions are endangered. The march of reason and evidence has left a gaping void. We are surrounded by a bubbling sea of unreality. Television, billboards, and newspapers first threaten the dam between dreams and waking consciousness. Twitter, Netflix, and the smartphone, always there and nudging away, have blasted it asunder. In place of structural changes, or indeed religious ones, the system defaults to plaster solutions, offering mere jolts of aliveness. The altered states economy, now generating as much as $4 trillion worldwide, offers a range of techniques to tap into the real, or at least muffle the unreal. There's alcohol and disposable vape pens, video gaming and high-intensity sports, breath work, meditation apps, and now the legal psychedelic drug, perhaps the most significant launch pad to sacred states yet. Medical authorities in Oregon are set to roll out psychedelic therapy this year, while many cities and states in the U.S. have, to various extents, decriminalized the drugs. Meanwhile, Mexico's tapping into the market for psychedelic experiences still illegal in the U.S. The faith we once put in transcendent states has been swiftly industrialized. A scan of the current psychedelic market reveals a strange mix of big pharma and young startups, such as ATAI, a Peter Thiel-funded firm. Its founder, Christian Angermeyer, has been accused of maneuvering to dominate the psychedelic market through zealous patenting strategies. 
He envisions his trials as perpetuations of mystical traditions from ancient Greece. More than 2,000 years later, though, profane illumination is now under the microscope, dissected, refashioned as a tool. Whereas psychedelic culture used to be defined by its naive subjectivism. You have to take it to know what it's like, man. A kind of naive objectivism has taken its place. On a scale of one to five, the Mystical Experience Questionnaire asked trial participants, how would you, quote, sense your psychedelic experience that cannot be described adequately in words? Efforts are underway to render psychedelic medicine continuous with growing suites of digital therapeutics. Some firms plan to substitute post-trip in-person therapy for an app. Other companies intend to track and harvest data from clients' voyages via wearable devices that personalize and facilitate the clinical experience. The ketamine market in the United States offers a terrifying glimpse at this future of runaway capital. In some called McKetamine clinics, users are shuttled through a pricey, yes, caught, yet cost-minimized production line of profane illuminations with little after-support. Despite serious risks of, risk of addiction, psychosis, and permanent visual disturbances, one such company, Peak, thankfully shut down its operations amid a backlash to its flagrant promotional strategy, which included online consultations lasting two minutes and promises to cure depression forever. Such absurdly utopian rhetoric abounds amongst the proponents of psychedelics, who include many powerful people in the tech world. Certain transhumanist thinkers in Silicon Valley have called for more research into drugs that produce permanent bliss states without the side effects. Theirs is an abolitionist strategy that seeks to eliminate all conscious suffering from the universe. Meanwhile, Elon Musk, who went strongly out of taste for psychedelics like the aforementioned DMT, has expressed hopes of extending the light of consciousness to the stars in tandem with technology. His Neuralink brain-machine interface is set to commence human trials in 2023. This language goes beyond aspiration or even idealism. It's a simulated religion. Inconveniently, there are dangers in viewing our search for God as a technical problem, one that can be solved through human ingenuity. The current psychedelic landscape is greatly influenced by Carl Jung, whose acolyte Stanislav Grof administered LSD in more than 5,000 sessions in communist Czechoslovakia. Yet Jung was famously suspicious of what he called, quote, the pure gifts of the gods, described and promoted by early psychonauts such as uh, Osman and Huxley. More than anything, Jung suggests, we ought to engage with the psyche on its own terms as a mysterious and subterranean layer of reality that can't necessarily be gauged in the terms of reason that govern our everyday lives. Similarly, indigenous and mystical traditions have warned the West against conquistador exploration of ecstatic states for centuries. 
The Eastern Orthodox tradition, for instance, has a rich literature of uh, prelist, a spiritual malaise in which the speaker of private mystical experiences becomes possessed, obsessed, deluded, or corrupted by egotism. It's not hard to see a grain of truth in the old Christian warning against demons, a warning levied by various Iberian conquerors against peyote and ayahuasca centuries ago, and now being revived by religious communities alerted to the psychedelic trend. Despite these warnings, there are growing communities of self-declared psychonauts heading deep into DMT space for hours before sharing their experiences on online, with users convinced that the entities they saw were very real. Yet, now catch this, in an era when the idea of evil has lost much of its cultural currency, it is curious that many report encountering entities that are exceptionally malicious or indeed demonic. So wedded are we to the idea of reason that we might laugh and pat the heads of these omens or reduce them solely to psychic projections. But here we fall for a transhuman fallacy that humans are in control of what's real. No wonder. It's easy to fall for that fallacy when you're in a transcendent state If it's a state provoked by a drug humans made and patented, part of the problem is the decline in ecstatic literacy. We just don't know how to discuss or understand or draw non-delusional conclusions from profane illumination. While the proliferation of psychedelic products has changed the game by normalizing such extraordinary experiences, we lack the language, the elders, the tradition, that helps us make sense and meaning of them. Indeed, the ancient roots of psychedelic use, which may have guided their explosion, are in grave danger. In Peru, fully onboarded to the ayahuasca tourism trend, the influx of gringos has fueled a rise in, quote, pseudo-shamans who adulterate their brews for extra kicks. Peyote and the Bufo alvarius frog whose venom contains the powerful compound 5-MeO-DMT, are now endangered, and the sustainability of ayahuasca reserves is now a legitimate concern. The price of ayahuasca has spiked as much as tenfold. Where once its sale was fiercely guarded, it's now touted in Coke bottles by impoverished rickshaw drivers who need extra cash. The emergence of the psychedelic industrial complex only accelerated the uprooting that globalization has been enabling for decades. Filament Health, a firm whose USP is to use natural psychedelics, made headlines recently for its creation of ayahuasca in a pill. Start your own religion, Timothy Leary told his followers in the 60s. Many tried, although their operations would swiftly descend into power-sustained cults. There recently came allegations of a similar cultishness emerging in a corner of Silicon Valley at the Center for Applied Rationality and Machine Intelligence Research Institute. One of the problems cited was frequent drug-enhanced debugging rituals. This is further evidence that attempts to wrench the numinous from its roots, then commodify it, are archetypically foolish, or in the unfashionable language of religion, sacrilegious. Little in life is really reducible to Damascene moments, I guess like the 
Paul on the road to Damascus. But a trip at its best can unlodge something, cause us to remember something we forgot. Yet rather than set us free, the release offered by the psychedelic state in the absence of any real program or tradition or container in the current language, seems to dissipate without leaving a meaningful trace. Even those who do experience relief from depression through psychedelics, for example, reliably relapse after a few months. Perhaps it is worth heeding what acclaimed psychonaut Aldous Huxley said when he was lying on his deathbed in November 1963. He requested a dose of 125 milligrams of LSD to ease his passage to the afterlife. And while it's said that his passage was uniquely peaceful, his final words are telling. It is never enough, never enough, never enough of beauty, never enough of love, never enough of life. Well, it's time for us to conclude our intelligence briefing case files for now and reflect on these results with some music for meditation. In past millennia, right up to recent decades, brave but foolhardy adventurers jumped into the inner or outer worlds, however you consider it, of psychedelics, a world for which they truly had no knowledge of their destination, the threats or enemies there, or how to protect oneself, or even how to return. Long ago, they traveled deep into jungles to have such experience with shamans, with mysterious chemicals and ceremonies performed which were terrifying and emotionally prepared the voyager. Similarly, the initiates of the mystery religions of Egypt, Greece, and Rome had similar experience in chemical ingestion, albeit under slightly more organized and polished procedures. The emergence of opium dens, peyote, and man's man-made contribution of LSD and its descendants have also provided similar thrills, sometimes seeking deeper meaning, though rarely ever noting such afterwards, or just for kicks, but sometimes an unpredictable bad trip that led to a permanent catatonic state, a psychic break, or a flying trip off a local ledge with repercussions that were often irreparable. Big business today is now figuring out how to monetize these cataclysmic and daunting decisions and experiences, far beyond that of the local drug distiller or dealer as in recent decades, albeit with little to no safeguards as to where the subjects are going in the psychic space, how to control it, or how to assure a happy therapeutic ending, which in some ways puts frontal lobotomies and electroshock therapy of recent generations to shame but it is a vector for which there is probably no turning back, as Big Pharma helps us create a society destiny so feared in the LSD era, but not potentially realized until now, a stoned generation. A song for our music for meditation that I could recollect that reflects the hazards of the mysterious psychic journey comes from a 1919 story by the weird fiction author H.P. Lovecraft entitled The White Ship. It entails a mystical voyage of a lightkeeper in, uh, in a mysterious airborne white ship and its captain, the former boarding it after traversing a moonbeam and visiting distant, ultra-dimensional lands and entities, some of whom appear charming outwardly but possess hidden dangers. The human lightkeeper's curiosity and greed for experience leads to eventual disaster, even in this world for his selfishness of being stoned out at the worst possible time. A great and memorable psychedelic band of the 1960s was named H.P. Lovecraft after the author, 
and many believe their greatest work was their song about this story, the 1967 song, The White Ship. It reveals a little of the tremendous four-octave vocal range of the wonderful Dave Michaels, whom I originally thought was a woman, and a classically trained virtuoso on keyboard instruments like the harpsichord. It also features a real 1812 ship bell for authentic effect. Enjoy this short single-release version of The White Ship by H.P. Lovecraft, and we'll be back to the Two Spies Report. another edition of the Two Spies Report. We ran a little long in these last two segments, and so we're going to have to stop there. Uh, In our next edition, we will continue with a review of my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees and Talk Radio and Cable News, which I encourage you to obtain in print or ebook form, either at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or some other sites. To, to review this and to go through the more expansive material on its subject there and to maybe better consider, review, and digest the material and the assertions and even the recommendations it makes. 
in our next uh, segment, we will review what I'd hope to cover today, which is how James Fifield and spiritual mobilization uh, in the Christian group got into the In God We Trust and One Nation Under God bad wagon and sort of made it their own. And we're going to cover that phase of things as well. Please send any comments about the show or questions to twospiesreport at gmail.com. T-W-O spiesreport uh, at gmail.com. It's for questions or comments to discuss on the air. Uh, please make a note if it's not to be shared on broadcast. It's a one-man operation here, so uh, don't really have time for personal responses, but we'll try to answer any questions that arise. Join us back here at 5 p.m. Central each Thursday at Radio Free Nashville, WRFN at 107.1 and 103.7 on the dial, or streaming live online at www.radiofreenashville.org. See you next Thursday at 5. Until then, keep exploring like the two spies, assessing and staying positive, and being willing to stand against the crowd. Good evening. Walking down the road with the good book in my hand Telling all my friends about the promised land Of the joy they'll find there And the peace of mind Telling all my brothers